You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Let's open with prayer. I've been sharing some of the Puritan prayers and devotions with you in recent weeks. And I've got another one for this morning. So let's open with that, shall we? O God of truth, I thank you for your holy scriptures, their teachings, promises, directions and light. In them may I learn more of Christ, be enabled to retain his truth and have grace to follow it. Help me to open the door of my soul that he may come in and show himself to me when I search the scriptures. For I have no way to measure its depth, no wings to soar to its heights. By his aid may I be enabled to explore all its truths, love them with all my heart, embrace them with all my power, implant them into my life. Bless to my soul all the grains of truth that I reap from your word. May they take deep root, be refreshed by dew from heaven, be ripened by rays from above, be harvested to my joy and your praise. Help me to profit by what I read as treasure beyond all treasure, a fountain which replenishes my dry heart, its waters flowing through me as a continual river by your Holy Spirit. Enable me to extract from its pages faithful prayer that grasps your omnipotence, achieves wonders, receives blessings and welcomes streams of mercy. From your word, show me how my words have often been unfaithful to you, harmful to my fellow man, empty of grace, full of folly and dishonouring to my calling. Then engrave your own words upon my heart and write them on my lips. So shall all glory be yours as I read your word. Amen. What happens to a nation that rejects the word of God or ignores it or forgets about it? I think we can see evidence all around us in our society of a society and a nation that has rejected the word of God. We see increasing polarisation between opposing points of view, whether those points of view are about politics or religion, education, sexuality, you name it. We're getting further and further extremes away from each other. You know that we seem to be getting more extreme in our opinions and less willing to tolerate an opposing point of view. And isn't it ironic that the more tolerance is demanded, the less it is offered? A funny thing. But as a result, we're overwhelmed by fractured relationships and isolation from each other. One of the things, actually, the blood of Christ was shed to do, to destroy that isolation between us. But we're seeing more and more of it in our society. Abortions outnumber live births births in much of the West. Criminals are more boldly violent than probably they've ever been, that we know of anyway, that we can recall, partly because I think the punishment is a little more than a slap on the wrist. 
and along with that increased lawlessness is a decreasing respect for authorities such as the government, the police and the courts. Alternative lifestyles are not just accepted, they're encouraged, promoted and even celebrated, while godliness is mocked and rejected. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Eventually even so-called Christian societies degenerate to the point where the pagan societies around around them look at them with contempt and disgust. Why do you think Western societies today are the target of so many terrorist attacks? It's because we in the West, in nations that are supposedly founded and governed by the Bible and Christian values, have strayed so far from those values, have abandoned the Bible. And we've strayed so far from them that we've become the great Satan in the eyes of many of the nations around us. We become a stench in their nostrils, to use biblical terminology. We shouldn't be surprised by this probably. It's not a new phenomenon. It happened in ancient times too. In fact, we have a prime example of it in the Old Testament several hundred years before Christ. If you've got your Bibles, you might like to open them to 2 Kings chapter 21. Now I don't have these scriptures on the overhead, but we'll have some later on, but if you're following along, 2 Kings chapter 21. There was a long line of kings of Judah and Israel. Some were better than others, but even the best ones of them weren't perfect. David, we know, was a man after God's own heart. He fulfilled God's plans in his life, it says in the scripture. But even David wasn't perfect. Some of the kings were pure walking evil. Some of them them led the nation into such depravity that the pagan nations around them were shocked by it. Two of the worst kings were Manasseh and his son Amon. Tells us in 2 Kings 21 verse 2, Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He built altars to Baal, he worshipped the stars, and to rub the Lord's nose in it, so to speak, He built altars in the house of the Lord and he burned his son as an offering to false gods. If that wasn't bad enough in itself, Manasseh led the people astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. What kind of wickedness resides in a man's heart that he would sacrifice his own child to false gods. Leaves us almost speechless to imagine the evil of it. And yet, is Manasseh really that much different from modern Australians, modern Americans, modern Europeans, modern Westerners? Unfortunately, for too many of us Westerners, children have actually become a burden. They've become a ball and chain that limits our uh, lifestyle, our opportunities, our careers. So instead, we choose to sacrifice them by abortion in phenomenal numbers. It's hard to get figures 
and what those numbers are, but it's something like 100,000 a year in Australia. It's over a million a year in New York, apparently, and outnumbers, I believe, live births in New York. Horrific figures. Are we really that different in our society from Manasseh? Is that what our society has come to? goes on to say in verse 16 of 2 Kings 21, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. And his son Amon, it seems, was no better. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, down in verse 20. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh his father had done. He walked in all the ways in which his father walked and served the idols that his father served and worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. In fact, Amon was so bad that we read in verse 23, the servants of Amon conspired against him and put the king to death in his house. How bad is a king that his servants conspire against him and kill him? Enough doom and gloom. There's good news coming. The good news also gives us some insight into why Manasseh and Amon were so wicked. I think it does. I believe it does. And also into why our society has degenerated so badly. After Amon was murdered, the people installed his son Josiah onto the throne at the ripe old age of eight. But what a contrast to his father and his grandfather Josiah was. Josiah was eight years old, it tells us at the start of chapter 22. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Anyway, when Josiah was 26, some workmen found the book of the law in the temple and it was brought to him. Josiah's secretary read the book of the Lord to Josiah and he tore his robes with grief. So great was the conviction of sin that Josiah felt. And he said in verse 13, For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do all that is according that, to do according to all that is written concerning us. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, it goes on to say, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. So what has all this got to do with us today? I don't think personally that's too difficult to draw parallels. The book of the law, which was Josiah's equivalent to our Bible in his day, had gone missing probably for decades. And during those years of famine of the word of God, the rulers and the people ran wild. Many of you, especially those who were part of Pentecostal churches a number of years ago, would be familiar with the old King James translation of Proverbs 29.18, where there is no vision the people perish. Modern translations put it, without revelation, the people run wild. Or, 
Another translation puts it, where there is no understanding of the word of the Lord. The people do whatever they want. Where there is no understanding of the word of the Lord, we do whatever we want. It's a telling observation from 3,000 years ago that holds true today. How little changes. I'm convinced that one of the primary reasons that Manasseh and Amon and the people were so ungodly is that there was little or no knowledge of the word of God in their day. There should be no doubt to us that the law of God provides boundaries for us and for society, but the word does more than just provide boundaries. I'll get to what else it does a little bit later on. So few people know or care what the Bible says anymore. What it says about God, what it says about themselves, what it says about anything. There's been a drought of hearing the word of God in our nation for decades. It's one of the reasons why we do the scripture reading at the start of our services. So at least we might get to hear the pure, unvarnished, unadulterated word of God. No commentary or anything, just the word of God, which is precious in its own right. This lack of knowledge or interest in the word of God in our nation should cause us grief. For the words of eternal life are contained in the Bible. Where else will we, where else will our friends, our family, our society, our nation get the knowledge of God to escape the eternal flames of hell if it's not in the word of God? We probably shouldn't be surprised that our societies abandon any pretense of dependence on the word of God. But what is more important for our purposes today, I think, is that we recognise that we Christians can be afflicted with precisely the same problem when we ignore the word of God. If we feel grief about lack of interest in the word of God in our nation, we should feel even more grief about the lack of interest amongst Christians and amongst ourselves, about our complacency and our ignoring the word. For our familiarity with the word of God is one of the tools that the Lord uses to not only keep us on the straight and narrow, as if that's all we need to do to keep God happy, it does more than that. It helps us to be conformed to the image of Christ. A far higher and much greater goal for us than keeping God happy, being conformed to the image of Christ. We've had a few weeks break since I last preached on the spiritual disciplines and uh, that's what we'll be about this morning for those who are visiting us, the spiritual discipline of Bible reading. During those couple of weeks, We've had a couple of guest preachers who have had messages for us that, to some degree at least, have touched on on our growth in Christ. Dale spoke to us a few weeks ago about waiting on God and waiting for God, about putting our trust and confidence in the Lord and in his timing 
the things in our lives. Dave then talked to us last week about the benefit of speaking in tongues. Sadly, this topic is more controversial than it should be, I think. But both of them are helpful for us as we seek to be conformed to the image of Christ, which is my goal for the series on the spiritual disciplines and I hope your goal for life, to be conformed to the image of Christ. So this week, it's a spiritual discipline of Bible reading. And as in the past, I hope to give you a bit of foundational knowledge and background along with some practical helps. And uh, John's got a, some handouts there if you'd like one. You can pass them around. I meant to put them on seats and I forgot all of them. Oh, you've done that. Thank you, John. There'll be some spares at the uh, table outside on the way out if uh, you didn't get one and you decide you want one. There's some resources on there to help you to develop a habit of regular Bible reading. I'm sure we all recognise, at least intellectually, the importance of Bible reading. I suspect many of us, and maybe most of us, are so inconsistent in our Bible reading that you would think it carries about as much importance and value to us as reading the cartoons in the newspaper. I'm not immune to this either. I've been a Christian for 30 odd years and in that time I've read through the Bible from cover to cover many times in many different translations. Um, But my commitment to that regular reading comes in bursts. I'll be motivated to read regularly for a few weeks or a few months and then it tapers off and I get behind in my reading and eventually abandon it entirely. And it can be months before I pick it up to read it consistently again, to read it for something other than preparing a sermon. That's not healthy. That is not healthy. That does not help my spiritual growth. And it doesn't help yours, quite frankly, that I'm here preaching the word to you and I'm inconsistent in my Bible reading. For that, I apologise and I ask your forgiveness. I ask you to pray that God will put a passion in me to be consistent in his word. But as I reflect on my history of regular Bible reading, one thing that stands out to me is that my commitment to Bible reading and my desire to read it mirrors the health of my relationship with Jesus Christ. You might find the same. If I've been captivated by Jesus Christ, if I've been overwhelmed by his grace towards me, if I've been amazed by his beauty and his glory afresh, I want to read and learn about him. I want to see what the word has to say to me. Conversely, if I become complacent or distant from him, or if I've been secretly enjoying some sin or the other, I don't read it and I often don't want to read it. And I don't want to read it because it shows me things about myself that I don't want to see. You may have found the same thing in your Christian walk. If you have, I hope this spiritual discipline will help you. And it won't just help you to become more regular and more consistent Bible reading, as good and as important as that. It will help to conform you to the image of Christ. Our goal as a church for this year. So a quick refresher for those who are have short memories or those who are visiting with us today on the spiritual disciplines. Firstly, we've got a definition. 
Spiritual disciplines are those practices found in Scripture that promote spiritual growth among believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That found in Scripture is important. Going bushwalking and enjoying the sun and the fresh air is not a spiritual discipline. The Bible says nothing about going bushwalking to connect with God. It may be a good opportunity to connect with God, but bushwalking is not a spiritual discipline. So it's the ones that are found in Scripture, and the ones that are found in Scripture are prayer and fasting, Bible reading, which we're on today, meditation, worship, fellowship and confession. And over the next several weeks we'll work our way through the rest of these spiritual disciplines. So we started out a little while ago with the spiritual discipline of prayer. That's, I believe, the most important of them. Then we followed up with fasting, which is one that we don't talk about much in Christian circles anymore, I don't think, but a valuable discipline in itself. The discipline of Bible reading is right up there with prayer. I don't know that I could separate one from the other as as a level of importance. But you know, the Bible isn't just a book of old, irrelevant stories. I mentioned a while back when I think we started this series I have a workmate that thinks the, bit, the whole of the Bible was written by one person, which he admits must have been pretty clever, but written by one person for the purpose of controlling other people. He clearly knows nothing about the Bible, even though he was educated in a supposedly Christian school. He knows nothing about history either for that matter. Even atheist historians acknowledge that the Bible was written by a number of different authors over a period of time. They reject the claims it makes for itself, itself, but they acknowledge that it was written by a number of different authors. For the record, the Bible is 66 books written by something like 40 different authors from as far-flung places as Rome through to Babylon over a period of around about 1,500 years. contains many different writing styles. There's poetry, narrative, letters, history, lots of different styles of writing. And yet, it tells one single story from start to finish. One of the difficulties of reading that single story, though, is it's not written like a novel with a start, it was a dark and stormy night, through to the end. So it's challenging to read the Bible. We'll talk a little bit about that later on and uh, maybe in the next, next one. But it tells that one single story because it has ultimately one single author, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit used 40 different people to write the Bible but he didn't dictate it to them word for word he breathed it out as it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 the the Bible was breathed out by the Holy Spirit so what the Holy Spirit did in effect was stir these men to write with their own style their own writing style their own experience their own intelligence but to read exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted us to know. 
they were writing from their own hearts and their own minds. But as they were doing that, nothing they wrote detracted from the accuracy, the truth or the reliability of the message that the Holy Spirit wanted to communicate to us. Even though they used their own words, they never distorted the message. The fact that the Bible has survived innumerable attempts through history to, to, to destroy it, to ban it, to marginalise it or to mock it is a powerful testimony to that one original divine author. And if you look at the way the Bible has changed millions, even billions of lives throughout history from radically different cultures, backgrounds, languages, we can only assume that there's a power to this book that's not present in any other book in the world, ancient or modern. So we dare not neglect it or ignore it. Where else will you find the words of life? There's a reason the word of God is so powerful. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, The word of God is living and active. Living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, All scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. In those two passages alone, the Bible makes claims about itself that would be arrogant and frankly unbelievable if they weren't true. But if these claims are true, and I'm working from the premise that they are true because I've seen them worked out in my life and I've seen proof of the faithfulness of God to his scriptures in my life. I'm working from the conviction that they're true. And if they are, we need to know what the Bible says about God and says about us. And that means, of course, that we need to read it. And we need to read it regularly. Now, as uh, I think I mentioned, this can be a bit of a challenge for many people. Some find it boring. And we have to be honest, there are bits in there that are boring. Some find it irrelevant. There's plenty of parts in there that we look at and think, I can't see what this has got to do with me. Many people don't understand what they're reading. And many people just struggle with reading full stop, whether it's the Bible or anything else. But none of these reasons or excuses detract from the importance of making the Bible, making Bible reading a habit for life. For the bits that don't make much sense to us today, that seem irrelevant today, may become some of the most precious to us in later life. But they need to get in to do that. So what are the benefits for us personally of Bible reading? Does it do anything in us that wouldn't just happen by a natural process of growing and maturing? You know the answer to that, of course. Yes, it does. God intends to grow us towards Christ-likeness. We can't wait for holiness and just hope it happens. 
we must pursue it. The Bible is very clear, we must pursue these things. That's what these spiritual disciplines, all of them, are about. About consciously putting ourselves in a position where the Lord has fertile ground within us to grow us into the image of Christ. At its simplest, Bible reading teaches us about the one we seek to be like, about Jesus Christ. It teaches us about his nature, his requirements, his holiness. And it works like a mirror to reveal to us our rebellion, our distance from him and our inability to make ourselves pleasing to him. We read before some of the claims the Bible makes for itself that it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. What surgeon's scalpel can cut the fine line between soul and spirit, no matter how sharp it is? What psychologist can truly discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Yet the word of God can do this every time we pick it up to read it. Be warned, if you don't want to grow to be like Christ, you won't like what the Bible reveals about you. For it doesn't varnish the truth to make us feel better. It's not a book of self-esteem. It's a book of Christ-esteem. It's about recognising our failings and turning to him to deal with that. This mirror of God's word reflects back to us a true image of who and what we are. But if you do want to become like Christ, you'll find no better book anywhere in the world to help you do that. The world is full of self-help books that promise to help you become a better person, to build better friendships, to break free from the shackles of your past, books on how to live your best life now. There can be a few nuggets of truth amongst all the drivel of humanistic thinking in those books, but not a single one of them can change you from the inside out permanently like the Bible can. Not one of them. And the Bible, interestingly, can do it even when we're not reading it. For it's living and active, remember. It gets into your very being. gets right into the core. And the Holy Spirit uses it to bring correction and comfort, direction or discipline as he sees fit. He will use us to encourage us to press ahead in the teeth of wild storms and opposition or he'll use it to prick our conscience about our sin by bringing relevant scriptures to mind. What other book is there that remains living and active 2,000 years, 3,000 years, even 4,000 years after it was written? The Bible is powerful. Get it into you by any means possible. Paul goes on to say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, 
knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It goes on to say, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's hard to know when you read that passage where to put the emphasis. Should we emphasise the power that is in that, the Bible, those sacred writings to bring faith for salvation? Should I emphasise the source of those writings, God himself, and the way he has graciously given us a manual, you might say, to know him by? Should we highlight the usefulness of the scriptures, their ability to teach us, to rebuke us, to discipline us, to prepare us to be righteous? Or maybe we should highlight the result of knowing the Bible, that we would be complete, mature and equipped for every good work. Whatever aspect of that passage you choose to emphasise, and they're all worth emphasising, they're all worth meditating on, it's clear that the Bible is not just useful, it is vitally important to our everyday lives as believers. But it's no use to us if we don't know it. It's the truth that sets you free, Jesus said. But if you don't know the truth, where's that freedom come from? We don't magically get a download of the Bible when we become believers. We don't get it in our heart and in our mind just by getting saved. It should come as no surprise to those who have heard me preach before that uh, I've had to split this message into two halves because there's just too much of value and importance for us to try and do justice to in one message. So this seems to me like an appropriate place to uh, split it and to begin coming into land. We'll be a little while landing because we have to circle a little bit still but I'll touch briefly on some of the benefits of reading the Bible then we'll expand on them when we come back to it. So reasons to read the Bible. There's several that I can give that we for why we should regularly read the Bible. I'm sure you could think of plenty more. But firstly, it gives us an accurate knowledge of God, of his beauty, his glory, his holiness, his power, his grace, his mercy, his justice and his wrath. It also reveals to us the truth about ourselves, our sinfulness, our rebellion, our hopelessness without him, our desperate need of him. It gives us the knowledge of good, and the knowledge of God's will. It brings freedom. It's a powerful weapon in our defence against temptation and sin. It feeds us spiritually and makes us mature. It helps us to be discerning, not gullible fools sucked in by whatever happens to be doing the circles in Christianity at the time. And most importantly, it conforms us to the image of Christ. One of my desires... One of my longings is that when I'm confronted by temptation or trial, my natural, unforced and real response 
would be the same as Jesus when he was challenged by the devil in the wilderness at the start of his ministry. You remember what happened then? The devil issued Jesus with three challenges. If you are the Son of God, do this, that and the other. Jesus' response to every challenge was, it is written, it is written, it is written. I want that sort of response to well up inside me like a fountain that when I'm faced with sin or temptation or trial, it wells up within me. It is written. Not a fake it till you make it response, but a real response because it's written so deeply in my, the fibres of my being that saturates me like a sponge in water that when you squeeze me, it is written rings out. What a dream that is. But the only way to get that is to read the Bible and to read it again and to read it again and again and again. My desire is that this would be true of you also, that when you get squeezed, it is written, squeezes out of you. Do you desire that? I hope you do. If you don't, will you join me in praying that God will plant that desire in you, in us, this morning? Would you close your eyes just for a moment? Father, I ask this morning that you'll put a deep, burning desire within each one of us for your word, for your truth. I pray that none of us will be satisfied with the fairy floss that the world serves up to us. Would you give us an insatiable hunger for the meat of your word? Would we be never satisfied with anything less than knowing your word deeply and intimately? I pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit you will write the Bible on our hearts and on our minds, that it will permeate every fibre of our being. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to do this work within us. In the precious name of Jesus, of whom the whole of this word speaks. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.